It's a crisp Saturday morning and I'm parked on the approach road to Hack Green Nuclear Bunker, deep in rural Cheshire. In the distance, I can see two East German border guards patrolling the perimeter. It's time for me to see if I can cross the border. Passkontrolle der DDR. Ihren Papiere bitte? Um, I don't speak German. Uh, nicht sprechen Sie Deutsch. Du Eisepass. Uh, in English, your passport, please. I need your papers. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Welcome to Cold War Conversations, episode 29, which takes place at a living history event in and around the Hack Green Secret Nuclear Bunker Museum in deepest Cheshire in the UK. I can heartily recommend visiting the Hack Green Bunker and we are planning an audio tour of the bunker as a future episode. Today's episode is slightly different. It's not in the studio or uh, in the spare room, more like. It was the first chance to try out our new on-the-move recording equipment, which has kindly been provided by our supporters who make monthly donations via Patreon. A special thanks to all of them, and we welcome our latest Patreon, Tim Price. If you would like to support the podcast further and get access to some exclusive extras that don't make it into the episodes, go to our website at coldwarconversations.com and click on the support the podcast menu option. Now, back to today's episode. The Living History event at Hack Green Secret Nuclear Bunker was entitled The Soviet Threat. It aims to take you back in time, investigating what life was like either side of the Berlin Wall during the Cold War. The event was patrolled by various reenactors, and checkpoints had to be passed as visitors are invited to venture between the two sides of the Cold War. A large contingent from the South Staff's Living History Group were there, mainly DDR-themed, However, many areas were covered, including RAF Molesworth Cruise Missile Base, French Foreign Legion, the Royal Observer Corps, US Army Europe, First Gulf War, Soviet, Bundeswehr, British Army of the Rhine, Polish, Czech and the Malayan Emergency. What particularly delighted me was the number of younger people who have gained an interest in the Cold War and are part of the reenactment community. We join the episode shortly after I have passed the DDR checkpoint and I chat with the two DDR border guards who are now in, let's say, a more amiable mood. Jed, can you tell me how your sort of interest in the Cold War started? Um, I accidentally acquired a Royal Observer Corps post. Um, me and my friend, we were uh, having a look at one or two um, and this particular one near Buckminster, uh, which is on the Leicestershire-Lincolnshire border, 
Uh, we've been to see it. I asked the loan landowner, uh, could I have it? Uh, didn't hear anything for a couple of weeks, so rang him up, and um, he said yes, surprisingly. Uh, and then suddenly I was thinking, what the hell am I going to do with this hole in the ground? Um, and that sort of led then to ended up researching more on the Cold War uh, and, um, yeah, being penniless, really, through collecting more and more Cold War kits. So I've got some interest in, in sort of the post-war era with British Army uh, equipment and things. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it sort of spiralled out of control since then and when you say spiraled out of control so the bunker's been restored as as an authentic roc post is that what you're saying yeah that's right it's uh, restored to we look around about 1983 um it's got some of the later features on the post as well uh this particular post when it was operational was broken into by the cnd uh and smashed up so um it had quite a lot of the later additions to try and stop that from happening um so that's one of the reasons why we've picked the 80s um the other's two reasons are uh, firstly the equipment from the latter period is is more easily obtainable uh and uh, the other thing as well is uh, in the november of 1983 uh, the world came very close to nuclear war so it seemed like a an appropriate moment to pick absolutely you'll be interested in my uh podcast on able archer there um so uh check that out um, so with, with the ddr side of things because i get the royal observer corps side so why particularly DDR. What's your fascination there? Um, I did German history at uh, college uh, and found it very, very interesting. Um, and uh, as such, it's it's sort of gone on from there um, until sort of the uh, start of last year. Um, we've got a number of items to do with the, the DDR just to sort of show the other side. Uh, and then for mine and my wife's honeymoon, we went to Berlin and uh, the uh, the addiction got worse. Sounds so romantic. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we, we went to all the beautiful sites. Uh, Checkpoint Charlie, went to the DDR Museum as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, it just seemed a, a very fascinating thing. But it's also, um, obviously, with, with the DDR, it's that point where East does meet West. Um, and so I think that's the other thing, the interaction, particularly in reenactment events that you can have between uh, border guards, in, in, in this case, and, uh, and those of the Western forces, uh, is quite... Quite, quite exciting as well. And uh, Dean and Jed are looking very smart in their Grenz Truppen uniform. Uh, I will be adding photos to the, uh, the the website. My description will uh, not not do it justice, but um, Dean is armed with a uh, Kalashnikov there, and I think you've got one over here as well. Yeah, I'm hoping my papers are in order today, otherwise I may be here some time. Dean, how did your interest in... Uh, East Germany start? Well, I I did um, Cold War history at college and I found it quite interesting. I've always been into history. Um, I was usually into, I was mostly into aircraft and, and stuff at first when I was younger. And then I just kind of went, oh, this military stuff's quite cool. Um, and what, what kind of happened is my friend on my history course got me into airsofting, which is uh, uh, kind of a bit like paintball, but with plastic BBs rather than paintballs. And I was after some cheap uniform, um, and I wanted an AK because I liked AKs. And uh, and uh, I saw this East German stuff, and it was like, oh, it's like a tenner for the combat uniform. Oh, that's dead cheap. And because I'm an uncontrollable pedant, I bought the uniform and then started buying all the other stuff because I was, I was obsessed with getting it right. Um, and what happened then is I got contacted by a fellow from Crawley who was looking for 
setting up a group and then I just fell down the rabbit hole really um, and now I have something like 20 or 30 uniforms for myself so enough to equip a decent sized East German platoon there yeah and I do have enough spare uniforms to issue them to other people um, and I've now got two sets of West German Bundeswehr stuff as well so yeah you know um, I'm always up for equipping other people I'm always trying to drag my friends along and they're always like no we don't do that <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, what's their, what's their sense of fun, hey? It's very boring, really, I think. <laughs> oh, I'm going to make them listen to this. <laughs> well, thank you very much, both of you. Right, so I'm now further into the bunker, and I've come across um, Sean dressed in a uh, very nice East German uniform. Sean, can you uh, just tell me about what you're wearing here? Yeah, I've actually got quite an unusual um, officer's uniform, and it's a civil defence one. Um, and what's unusual is there was only 200 uh, civil defence officers that were that were main um, regulars that were attached to the civil defence units to train them. So it was quite a small elite unit, um, and it's quite hard to get hold of the uniform. But I was really lucky to get one in my size, and um, I've done a lot of um, research and stuff into the history, and I find it quite interesting. So it seems quite unusual. It's got sort of like this purple uh, piping on the collar and on the uh, sleeve. Is that sort of the the civil defence identification? Yes, it is. Um, The uniform that Sue's wearing here, she's actually wearing a civil defence uniform, um, which has the same purple piping, because obviously purple traditionally in the um, German army was always associated with um, chaplains and padres. But the East Germans used it for their civil defence force, and obviously they had quite a big civil defence um, unit, a lot like we did here in the UK. Um, so it's it the, the, the purple piping or Waffenfarbe, as they call it, is exclusive to the civil defence. And how did you start your interest in the Cold War? What what drew you to this subject? Cars. It was actually a car. Um, I was in London in '93. Um, and I, somebody had driven a Trabant back from Germany and I'd seen it parked outside an art studio and I really liked it and people at the time said, oh, you don't want those, it's rubbish. Um, so in 2012, I got the opportunity to buy one. Um, so I bought a Trabant and that's where my interest stemmed from. Um, and I think what happens is, is that one thing leads to another. You start then to look at the history and the background to them um, because obviously trans- Trabants have always been ridiculed, but actually now they're seen as quite iconic and symbols of freedom. Um, and some of the events that we attended with the Trabant, um, there were reenactors, and that's how I got involved. So is this the only uniform you have, or do you have uh, further uniforms? Um, you're smiling, so I think uh, you may have some further additions. Well, I've got that many. I, it's hard to decide which one to actually bring. <laughs> Um, I've got several, but I actually collect them, so it's more of a collection as well. Um, I tend to buy uniforms of my size if I can get them, um, and I like to do the research behind them, so I do have several, um, because there is there is a history behind them. I mean, a lot of people um, always associate East Germany with the Stasi, but you know they were ordinary people um, doing ordinary things, so there are, there's a lot of history. So thing, uniforms like the railway uniforms or the transport police, which are... They're fantastic uniforms. They all have different colours, different meanings, um, but they're great. Once you start to research the history behind them, you actually find out quite a lot. So what if you had to save one, which one would you save? That's quite a tricky question. Um, Okay, I'd I'd definitely save the civil defence 
it's interesting actually because this came with a whole man's lot. So um, the gentleman's still alive from Germany and he wanted to pass it on to somebody that was interested um, and ended up with all of his medals, his dagger, uniforms, all of his paperwork, um, which obviously I cherish cher and look after, so I'd have to keep this one. Um, also, I've got a panzer um, tunic and, and uniform set, which is quite nice as well. Um, but to be honest, they, they're all as good as each other. I'd, I'd really struggle, to be fair. I remember living in London in the early 90s, not long after the wall had gone down, and I used to go to Portobello Market every weekend. And there, were, there was a, a, a Russian chap there that used to have a stand, and he had everything. And you could pick up a complete MiG pilot suit with the high, you know, the high, um, the high pressure suits, and now for for nothing. But now they go for over, the helmet alone goes for over a thousand pounds. The the DDR and Cold War is particularly interesting because you've still got people who you can talk to lived through through that period. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the guy with the civil defence uniform. What you know? What did he say to you? You know, looking back now on on that period, is there anything you can share there? I was quite surprised they got rid of it. But what's happening in Germany is they're actually taking an active interest in their past, mm. and it's it's actually the youth in Germany that are doing that. So we're finding a lot of stuff is actually going back to Germany, um, which is is the norm. So it's unusual actually for it to go out. They tend to like to keep hold of it, and especially so with cars, some of the older. Um, Trabants like the P6s and P50s, they're being snapped up by the Germans because they let them go because they wanted to get rid of that past and then all of a sudden they've realised, well, hold on a minute, it's actually part of our heritage. Yeah. Yeah. Right, I'm now here with Paul and uh, he's with some friends here um, with a display around the Malayan emergency. So, Paul, can, what can you tell me about the Malayan emergency? Well, in essence, it's... It's where the Cold War starts and really turns aggressive. Um, it starts with the murder of three rubber plantation owners in 1948 uh, in Malaya. It slowly escalates to a point where the where Malaya tells the British government says we need help, and it's the British Army assisting the Malay police force to bring order and put down a communist insurgency in the jungle. Okay, and so what sort of size of British force was involved in this? Uh, let's say, British infantry, you've got about 35,000 um, actual infantrymen uh, that are put out there. Um, they're backing up a force of around about 80,000 uh, Malay special policemen um, and also British serving personnel as part of the Malay police force, uh, special constables, jungle patrols, um, and so forth, all told. It's about, about 110,000 personnel versus, at their height, about 8,000 communist insurgents in the jungle. Well, that, that's quite a, an imbalance. Uh, how did it end up? Surprisingly, it takes an awful long time to uproot the communist insurgency in the jungle. It's a conflict that's actually fought over 12 years, twice as long as the Second World War. Uh, Bizarrely, fought against a man called Chin Peng as well, who's the only, uh, only enemy of the state that we've had. Uh, to hold an OBE, uh, which he was awarded for his work as a guerrilla fighter against the Japanese during the Second World War. And at the end of that war, he turned the weapons that we'd given him on us. Very familiar story throughout time. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, I was looking at your uniform when I came in, and I noticed there's a, a sort of blue piece of fabric on the hats of all of your colleagues. What, what's the idea of that? The idea of that, this is something that we'd had actually found on a lot of photographs but couldn't really get an answer for until we spoke to a few people that had served in the malaria emergency. And it's a very scratch-built kind of security flash. The idea being is you go out on a combat patrol um if you're killed they may well take your uniform and come back and infiltrate the village the camp etc and when you're a national serviceman who's never been out of england to be fair one malay may well look an awful lot like another um and so what you would have is you have a series of colored shapes and you would be agreement that when you're coming back in you would be wearing one of these colored shapes and therefore you wouldn't get shot on sight so at the moment i've got a blue triangle attached to my hat if i had gone out with say a yellow circle attached to the hat and hadn't changed this or i'd been taken down and somebody stole my uniform came back in with the yellow circle on then we know that that is a stolen uniform they can shoot that one on site okay so really simple means of identification yeah simple, um, but effective and really quite genius yeah really good so I'm looking at some of the weaponry you've got out here, and this was quite close to the end of World War II. So I'm, I, I think I can see a Bren gun and a uh, Lee Enfield rifle there. Yeah, you can in fact see two um, Lee Enfield rifles there. There's the longer number four Enfield rifle, which is very typical of the British Army across the Second World War, and is the rifle that we were arming Chinpeng's anti-Japanese army with. Uh, the shorter one with the slightly fanned out barrel uh, at the end, that's the number five jungle carbine. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Um, has a shorter range than the number four, but you don't really need range when you can't see an enemy beyond 150 yards in the jungle. So that wider barrel gets rid of muzzle flash, which when a lot of your ambushes are taking, care of, taking place at night, you do need that extra protection. Uh, uh, the Bren, uh, there's also the Mark V Sten gun, now, over the course of the Malaya emergency, all these weapons will change. The development of the SLR, the Sterling submachine gun, much, much better weapons uh, for any theatre of war, uh, not just this one. But in the early days, in 1948, we were marching into Malaya with Second World War weaponry. Right. And so um, why did you get interested in the Malayan emergency? How, how did that come about? Um, partly because uh, Kyle, one of our members, his grandfather served in Malaya um, and he came along to one of our, the events where we were portraying Second World War uh, with a photo and we noticed that, well, that's not a Second World War gun. 
well, what is this and where did he serve? And then we then we found out about the malaria emergency, as we keep saying. Nobody seems to have heard of it. And our souls are included at that. But the more you look into this, the more fascinating a story it becomes. Um, so we started to look into the, the work of the national servicemen. And nine out of ten British infantrymen out in Malaya were on their two years of national service. This was the citizen-soldiers' war. Um, and the more that you tug at this thread, the, the more fascinating it becomes. We do also like to go to people's 1940s weekends and claim that it didn't all stop in 1945. British military history carries on 48 and beyond. So our little protest. But that's what sparked it all off. Um, and it's been five years on since there. Fantastic. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. So I'm now in one of the corridors at Hack Green uh, with Howard, who, uh, with my limited knowledge of uniforms, I think he's dressed as a U.S. military policeman. But we're going to find out a bit more from Howard. So uh, am I correct? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm dressed as a uh, 1987 uh, U.S. Air Force um, security policeman, um, and this is depicting the policeman that would have been guarding the Tomahawk cruise missiles at Greenham Common and Molesworth. Um, being from Northamptonshire myself and Molesworth just up the road, I thought, well, no one depicts like missiles. Uh, those missiles were only stationed in those bases for up to nine months before they were uh, written off by the SALT Treaty that was signed by Ronald Reagan. Um, but obviously anyone of the pr- appropriate age will remember that being on the news all the time with uh, Greenham Common Peace protesters and uh, protesters at Molesworth. I absolutely remember it well at the at, at the time. So, were these policemen armed, and were they given orders to uh, use lethal force if the peace protesters had got anywhere they shouldn't have done? Yeah, so um, obviously all of the bases um, were badged RAF, so if you go there to this day, you've got RAF Molesworth, obviously Greenham Common has now gone, um, but they uh, were US Air Force personnel supported by RAF um, Mod Police. Um, the Mod Police would have the civil duty outside of the periphery wire um, to you know, arrest people and ask them nicely to go and move on, um, but certainly once you breach that inner wire, which the peace protester did breach uh, there were orders to uh, you know shoot to kill so that was a kind of a bit of a daft thing to go and do um they didn't actually shoot anyone um but you know there were orders to uh, they were protecting a nuclear asset yeah so it it came close to them potentially opening fire Yes, absolutely. Um, to the extent that um, in the late uh, 80s, um, Michael Heseltine turned up with um, over 2,000 MOD policemen overnight and uh, they erected over 19 miles of twin barbed wire fence around the entire periphery of Molesworth and ejected the uh, police, uh, the peace protesters from the site. Um, that obviously made headline news at the time. Um, but obviously it was short-lived because then the uh, the missiles went. Uh, there was a big public fanfare when they went and they all drove out the gate with the big uh, tell launch, big man truck tell launchers, um, but unbeknown to the protesters, they were just the launchers and the missiles left uh, underslung under a helicopter about three weeks later. <laughs> right, and so were these police deployed outside of the perimeter when the Tomahawks had deployed, or was there an extra um, close defence unit that was deployed with the launchers? 
no, the, the mission of the uh, United States Security Police is, uh, if you compare it to the British, um, we would have the RAF regiment to defend the base or the asset, in this case the deployed missiles, um, and then we would have military police for policing duties. In the US Air Force, the mission falls to one branch, so they did both. So the, the, obviously they have specialists in defence, you know, uh, infantry weapons, mortars, etc., etc. Um, when they went out, they had MOD police with them, but it's true to say that when these missiles would have been deployed in time of war, that no one knew where they were going to go. They were completely sealed orders, and that um, the launchers did go out for exercise, but they never exercised at the real launch location, so they would have... the officers in charge would have been just as surprised where they're going to deploy um you know could never been there yeah right no thank you very much for that i do have an interview lined up with uh an officer who's involved in the training of the pershing missile crews in uh germany so uh do listen to uh further episodes how has your interest in the cold war come about um well i'm a um keen uh u.s army and air force collector i've collected for over 40 years um, mainly world war one world war two american uh, military um basically i've got all of the world war two stuff with jeeps and all that sort of thing but i invested in a u.s air force uh, dodge ram um crew cab minibus which is outside and it's all fully badged with all the original uh, um m16s and blue and red lights and that as it served at milden hall um in fact uh, I did set off yesterday in my M998 Humvee, um, but it broke down about 10 miles from home, so I had to revert to coming in the Dodge Ram. Right, I'm uh, here with Ian now, who is uh, dressed in a uniform, and judging by the flag on his sleeve, I suspect it's something to do with France. So, uh, Ian, can you tell me about who you're uh, representing here? Um, well, you're right, it's France. The flag does definitely give it away. Um, I'm portraying a uh, French foreign legionnaire uh, from about the uh, no- early 1980s period. And where... So, French foreign legion, where would they have been... Or what was their, their task during that period? Um, it was, to be honest, I think it was a lot of for, uh, foreign interaction. They were one of the first to go overseas uh, in any kind of uh, situation that required it. Um, they're in the Sudan in... 1982, I believe, and they also intervened in Lebanon in the mid-80s. Um, but Fren- uh, French army being a conscript nation, they had to get uh, government permission to actually send troops abroad. Uh, French Foreign Legion, not technically being French citizens, kind of circumvented that. So they were kind of the first to react to any issues. Okay, so they're like a French rapid deployment unit. Uh, in a way, yes. Yeah, and um, there were certain other regiments within the French army that, that were designated as fast reaction like that. Um, but certainly the Foreign Legion were, tended to be one of the first to respond. Um, I'm now talking to uh, Kate. Now, uh, what organisation are you representing, Kate? I'm representing the Royal Observer Corps, um, which has got its foundings basically sort of from the mid third, well, down to the First World War, actually, um, looking at this, trying to look for the Zeppelin bombs. Um, and then it sort of reinvigorated it um, in the 50s. Um, I think it was about the 50s for the Cold War. Um, and they were used as a monitoring sort of um, organisation in case of nuclear war. So they had, they had anywhere from sort of 800 to, I think it was about 1,400 bunkers, small bunkers that were manned by a team of three. Uh, generally, it probably had maybe nine people on it, and it rotate through a shift pattern. So, yeah, the bunkers were all manned by three people, and then they had regional headquarters and 
they were sort of integrated into the UK warning organisation. Um, so they've got quite a good heritage. Um, fortunately, they were disbanded sort of 91 and then a token amount sort of carried on till 95. Um, and they were used for the biological and biological chemical sort of monitoring and then they were disbanded in 1995. Um, fortunately, where I live in Coventry, there's a, an organisation, so the Royal Observer Corps Association, and we meet with them on a Monday, and they're quite um, entertaining, and they tell us some sort of the social stories, and I'm more into the social history of it, really. Um, but it's really interesting meeting these people, because, you know, they're in their 70s now, and they're, they're almost like a forgotten organisation. You know, they were fairly underground as you can say and people weren't aware of their existence really i thought the royal observer corps had a sort of like natty raf blue uniform what what have you got on here well i've got i think the coveralls were issued in the 80s and generally they'd have a royal observer corps badge on their chest um so because working in the bunker was quite dirty work you know and it was quite basic conditions really you know your toilet didn't even flush out so the electricity came off a battery or a generator and you know the, the bunker was very very simple so they issued people with uh, coveralls in the 60s sorry not 60s the 80s and basically essentially i think they're RAF or army coveralls so that's basically why i'm wearing coveralls and then the uh, pouch or the satchel that i've got on my chest we use for carrying the um photographic slides that went in the ground zero indicator um so they're quite rare and only that that was attached and i think it was each observer had their own sort of role so you had observer one two and three and i think observer one was probably the chief observer and he didn't have to go up top i always found it quite funny that they'd wait for a minute after the nuclear bomb would go off and they'd go up open the hatch take the um, photographic card out and put another one in take it back down the hatch and you're thinking how much have they ex- been exposed to with regards mm-hmm. to radiation mm-hmm. you know and they only leave a minute really so they're quite exposed really it's an organization so uh, you're you're actually depicting the poor third person who would uh, end up going out and retrieving that photographic paper i am indeed fortunately i'm still alive that's good thank you very much for that Okay, I'm now uh, speaking to John, who, uh, again, I'm relying on my limited uniform identification skills, but he's definitely U.S. Army. He's just showed me a Stars and Stripes on the sleeve. So uh, what unit are you representing here? I'm not representing any unit in particular. I'm just a sort of uh, general overlook of the United States Army in the late 80s to early 90s period. As I've got the, uh, the Kevlar helmet, the Pascat, and the matching vest as well which was introduced in sort of uh, the mid-80s period and then only really saw widespread issue towards the later end of the era. Great. And uh, how did you come to be interested in the Cold War? Um, I think it's probably a common answer for the younger folk, but I mainly sort of got into through video games. You sort of play like military-based video games. And back in like the 90s when I was growing up, you'd have a lot of games featuring American soldiers dressed in this kind of kit. So that kind of stuck with me and I found it interesting. And of course, as you get older, you kind of you get a bit more interested in the history behind it and the, the significance of the period. And then you, as you look more into it, you learn more about the Cold War and how things developed and really the significance of the military in that era. Right. I've now come into one of the other rooms at Hack Green to be uh, confronted by a number of uh, Soviet weapons and uniforms. And I've got Bill here who... Uh, I'm talking to. So, uh, Bill, the, the uniform you've got on at the moment, who are you representing? It's Soviet Naval Infantry, so also called the Black Death or like Soviet Marines. And I'm basically wearing a woodland camo version of the uniform. 
Okay, and uh, these weapons that you've um, got on the table here, I think I, I recognise the uh, the AK-47, but what else have we got here? We've got the forerunner of the AK-47. That's called an SKS, self-reloading rifle. Uh, it takes 10 bullets, and basically it's um, once you've loaded it, pull the trigger and pull each time, and it reloads itself. Uh, the top weapon here is a World War II PPSH-41, it was the standard infantry machine gun for World War II, basically a building and trench clearing out weapon, only at a range of 200 yards. Okay, and um, so how how did you start your interest in uh, Soviet military? I think it's probably safe to say. Yeah, that's why I've um, got myself a military vehicle. It was a Gaz 69, so a Russian vehicle. Yeah, and from there I had to get everything else that goes with it, and that's where I'm here today. Fantastic. So have you brought your gas with you today? Yes, it is. It's outside in the, in the parking lot. Okay. Well, I'll be going out and checking that out later. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Um, I've also got uh, Bill's son here as well. Are you here because you're interested in Soviet military or are you here because your father's here? Well, for the first few years, I wasn't too interested, but over the years, I've sort of gained an appreciation for the history that comes with it as it has affected a lot of what our current day events are through the 20th century so i think there definitely is an interest for me personally as well in all of us so i'm here sitting with ellie who is one of the organizers of today's soviet threat uh, event here at hack green so ellie can you just tell me about the event and what it's about um, so the Soviet threat event is a mixture of Cold War reenactors coming together. Um, it started off as an event just for reenactors, and it's grown into something that the public have really enjoyed. Um, and it's currently in its uh, fourth year here at uh, Hat Green Secret Nuclear Bunker. It's just an event for people to gather together with their collectibles um, and their passions, um, and to also educate as well. Um, a lot of the public that come along seem to really react well to, to the uh, interaction that we've got going on here and to the reenactors and their collections as well. What can the, um, the public expect as far as, you know, interacting with the um, reenactors? We encourage people to actually touch history and, and to be tangible with it. So we have a mixture of different displays from being um, talks and almost um, academic lectures on displays. So if you go down to the, the Malaya room where the lads are down there doing their Malay display, they can be quite academic, whereas we've got an awful lot of perhaps what some people might describe as slapstick kind of comedy of uh, crossing the border and stuff like that. But people react differently to the different ways that we portray um, the Cold War. So if somebody's really into their academia and really wants to understand the politics and the policies and, and what was going on at the time in that respect, there's something for them. But if they want to really get hands-on, try guns, put a gas mask on, etc., etc., and really get into a bit of the comedy aspect, perhaps, that people know from stereotypes across the years, they can interact in that sense as well. Well, thank you very much for uh, talking to us. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed for coming along. I'm here now with Michael, who is dressed in a uh, Polish uniform, I think, from what I can identify by the uh, cap badge. Michael, can you describe what uh, unit you are enacting today? Uh, yes, this is a Polish airborne unit for Pomeranian um, Airborne Brigade. Uh, and the Pomeranian used to be part of Germany, strangely enough. And, uh, and, and it was um, the elite unit of the Polish Army. 
This is an unusual uniform. I mean, I've seen a lot of East Germans today and uh, some Russians uh, and some Americans, but I've not seen any Polish. Is this quite a rare uniform? Yeah, it's rare. It's very difficult to get hold of the actual uniform because um, for some reason the Polish don't export it greatly. Uh, the uh, bobs and bits and bobs you can get, like the, uh, the gas mask and the hats and things like that, are quite common. The actual uniform complete is quite rare. So how, how did you get into in reenacting? What What sort of sparked that interest? Well, it goes back an awful long way because I've been interested in the military since I was um, a schoolboy many years ago doing war games and gravitated via army cadets to Territorial Army and then spent a few years doing other things and then got into reenacting in the mid-1980s during the American Civil War uh, from 1987. Wow. Now, I'm, I'm trying not to be rude here, but you can obviously remember the Cold War. What, what are your abiding memories of, of the Cold War personally? Well, the first thing I remember about the Cold War was being at school when I remember the uh, Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968 and thinking how brilliant that was, how fantastic were these tanks and everything, or not realising the implications, obviously, just from a schoolboy's point of view, loving all the tanks and the uniforms. And that was my first uh, touch with the Cold War, what I remember of it. And uh, I was always interested in, in that side of things, interested in the Russian side of it, strangely enough. And did you ever visit Eastern Europe during the Cold War at all? I did, I did. I went on a coach tour, a European coach tour, which took in West Germany, but also East Germany. And uh, we travelled into Denmark first, and then we got a ferry from Denmark into um, Rostock. So we travelled overland into Berlin, and then spent a few days in Berlin. So it was quite an interesting tale, actually, on May. Uh, when we, we travelled from Rostock into Berlin, we, we stopped in a little village just for a coffee break. Just as a Russian troop convoy was passing through with its uh, trucks and mortars, heavy mortars, and uh, and this checkpoint, this, this Russian soldier leapt out and was doing guard duty, and we were all standing there just watching it, you know, in amazement. And as we pulled back on the coast again and set off, we we had we was in the middle of this Russian troop convoy, trucks, mortars, coach, trucks, mortars, coach, and again, I thought this was was brilliant. No, not me, my fellow travellers weren't so sure, but I enjoyed it. Yeah. No, absolutely. I bet that lived up to your expectation of uh, East Germany. Well, it did, because then the part of the tour was we went through Checkpoint Charlie uh, the next day and actually took a tour around East Berlin, obviously uh, under a guide. Uh, but um, we were told when we went through Checkpoint Charlie not to make any comments. Now, when the guard came on, you know, don't make any sloppy comments, yes, I've got a gun or anything. But uh, we had to get off the coach and everything was searched. And our passport was taken away and we were left standing for a good half an hour waiting for them to come back. And then once everything was cleared, we got back on and did the tour. And while, while you were in East Germany, did you manage to speak to any ordinary East Germans? No, we weren't really, but um, I think you had to buy X amount of Osmarks, which you had to spend before you came back. So we, we, we stopped off at various places and a, a bar which we, we bought drinks in, and I think they, they get rid of it. And I always remember in the bar there was a copy of Pravda, and uh, I was there looking at it, not really know what I was looking at particularly, but uh, it was all part of the experience, really. So. Wow, that's, uh, that's an, uh, an amazing account. I always like to talk to people who've actually, um, you know, experienced the Cold War for real. So thank you very much for your time, Michael. That's all right. My pleasure, my pleasure.
I'm here now with uh, Jay, who uh, is in a U.S. Army uniform. I can tell that because it says U.S. Army on the front. Um, so, Jay, what unit are you representing here today? Uh, this is the uh, uniform on the uh, standard USGIs based in Germany during the uh, late 80s period, just before the fall of the Berlin Wall, specifically for Operation Reforger in 1987. It's not actually my usual uniform. My usual uniform would be uh, Queen's Lancashire Regiment, uh, British Army on the Rhine, which is actually my uh, father's regiment during the uh, 70s. He was... It's really his fault that I've got into all this, purely because of his stories from um, when he was in the territorials. When my dad saw me in the uniform, he said it was like looking in the mirror, he said it was really strange. So I'm quite proud of that. And uh, also we're um, we're using that uniform to help the uh, Queen's Lancashire Regiment uh, Veterans, uh, Veterans Association. So um, any bits of kit that I pick up uh, will then donate to them to then auction off to raise money for the uh, veterans association oh that's that that's really good and i mean what does your dad feel about you reenacting his uh, his military co- career effectively um he finds it really strange he could never get his head around reenacting but it's um i think he's he's starting to understand a bit um and he's starting to see more about um how we're using our reenacting to uh, teach uh, young people about cold war and what happened jay thank you very much for your time i really appreciate it no problem thank you for speaking to me i'm here now with uh, alex who is in a ref uniform so uh, alex what um, unit or uh, character are you enacting here i, I usually reenact the uh, east german border guards um, but I wanted to represent the RAF as well because Hat Green was actually an RAF station at one time. Um, so this is the first time I've worn this outfit, but um, eventually I will want to portray a late 70s or early 80s um, early warning radar operator. So uh, why are you interested in Cold War specifically? Um, politically and economically, the period was fascinating. Um, and I've done quite a lot of reading and research about that. Um, and I also have a personal connection to it because my mum is actually from what was Czechoslovakia. So I remember going to visit my grandma in the, the late 80s uh, when it was still behind the Iron Curtain and seeing a little bit of that life just before it disappeared forever. Um, my mum came to live in Britain in 1982. Um, and in the late 80s and early 90s, we used to go there for summer holidays. And uh, my grandma lived in a small village near the, the city of Brunel. And uh, I can still remember the harvest time um, when it was still a collective farm with the, the YZD, which uh, is actually translates as the Unitary Agricultural Authority. Um, and they used to let us go out on the combines. And so once the harvest was in, um, you'd take it to the, back to the, the collective farm, which is a completely different institution to what we had in Britain. Um, and you'd see the combines going down the street and then there'd be a big party. And so your, your, one of your claims to fame can be you worked on a collective farm? I didn't really. I was too young at the time, but um, I got to ride on the combine while they were doing the work. Oh, well, that's pretty good for me anyway. Well, that sounds fascinating stuff. I'm always interested for uh, eyewitness. Uh, thank you very much, Alex. Thank you. Right, I'm here in the bowels of Hack Green nuclear bunker on the second day of the Soviet threat. 
I have Jonathan with me, who, even with my limited uh, uniform identification, I think he's dressed as U.S. Army, but he's going to tell me more. So, Jonathan, what what are you representing here? Well, today uh, I'm supposed to be a soldier of the 1st Cavalry Division in 1991. Uh, This is the uniform that a soldier would have worn after the invasion of Kuwait. So we are waiting along the border in Saudi Arabia, and we have got our desert fatigues on. Okay, and you had a uh, a very interesting hat on as oh, well, yeah. didn't you? Uh, yes, that's a, a Stetson. That's what um, the first cavalry wear when they're in their number one uh, dress uniform. And uh, they would have taken those out with them to the field. Okay, it looks like uh, something out of a cowboy film. It does. Um, but the first cavalry division used to uh, honour their heritage by uh, continuing to wear the traditional Stetson hat. Yeah. No, it looks, looks really good. I'm going to have to take a photo of that in a moment. So how did you get into reenacting? Uh, well, my family, we uh, have always been into military kind of history and aviation. And we uh, bought some aircraft kind of pieces. We even had the cockpit section of an aircraft. And um, we saw people coming to these events dressing in military historical uniforms. And we started doing the same. And it's just grown from there, really, till we've got all this what you see wow okay so let's just have a look at the um equipment you've uh, got here so under the stetson is is that a sterling sterling sub yes that's a sterling submachine gun so that is that would have been well the first went into use uh, they went through trials in 1944 and they were used up until about 90 uh, into about 1994 so from 1944 so that essentially a replacement for the Sten? It was, yes. Uh, they didn't replace it straight away. It was up until about 1953-ish uh, when they decided that the Stens were getting a bit old and a bit tired, so they fully started replacing them uh, around then. <laughs> okay, great. And and what else have we got here of note, okay. would you say? We have, a, we have, well, that's more of a Vietnam kind of era weapon, but they were still being issued, and that's an M16A1 with an M203 grenade launcher. And uh, a lot of forces around the world still use those today. There's a um, very effective weapon. Okay, and it uh, looks like you've got a SLR here as well. Yeah, that's the uh, standard issue assault rifle for the British Armed Forces um, from around the, the late 50s, early 60s, up until uh, around 1994, and there are, and like the um, the M16A1, there are still a lot of forces around the world uh, still using those. Uh, very, uh, very effective, good 7.62, good stopping round. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you very much for your time, Jonathan. Right, I'm here now with Matthew, who uh, appears to be dressed in some sort of Soviet uniform. I'm just going to ask him for a little bit more detail as to who he's representing. Uh, yes, I'm representing uh, a Russian tanker from the 1980s, from the first Gulf War period. Okay. I see you're also armed with a AK-47. That looks like a shortened version. Is that to make it easier to uh, move around the tank? Yeah, that's pr- that's practically what it is um, with a falling stock, so you can get in and out of the tank um, and be able to move around inside the tank without bumping into things. Thank you very much for your time, Matthew. Really appreciate it. All right, thank you. Uh, I'm here in uh, what I'd call the Soviet section of the uh, Soviet threat um, event today at Hack Green, and I have Matt with me who... Uh, is dressed in a Soviet uniform, but uh, I've yet to identify it fully. So, uh, Matt, tell me about your uniform. 
Well, uh, what I'm wearing is a late 80s, very late 80s uh, Soviet VDV paratroopers uniform from the Afghanistan war. Um, I've got a 6B3 TM01 vest, which is a bulletproof vest. Uh, I've got a what's called an M88 uniform, uh, which was supposed to replace the M69, which was the older infantry uniform, um, but sort of only partially replaced it up until about the 90s. Um, and yeah, that's that's what I'm, I'm wearing today. I am a paratrooper. And uh, you've got uh, a couple of cylinder-like things in your uh, pockets. Can you tell me about those? I have these little things here. Are They are called rocket flares, and they're basically small fireworks. They've got a, a screw cap on the top. You unscrew the cap, and there's a cord inside and a little friction igniter. You pull that, and off goes the flare. They come in various colours, and they're used for signalling calling in helicopters to pick you up or helicopters for support or artillery all sorts of little things like that okay and um how did you get an interest in the cold war how did that come about well this might sound a little bit crass i know for a lot of people it may be a little bit crass it was a video game i can blame all this on video games originally um i played a video game uh, which was specifically focused on chernobyl and i sort of thought oh, this is this is really good i started to study that particular event and it sort of snowballed from there to study the Cold, the Cold War and the Soviet Union generally. And this is, for me, this is one of the best ways of sort of solidifying any study. I don't mind reading books and reading articles and learning in that way, but this is a really good way to, to kind of bring all that together and to put a sort of physical angle on that. Which is- That's great. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. No problem at all. Thank you very much. Right, I've now moved to the uh, cafe for a well-earned cup of tea, and I have Mark uh, with me in uh, another Soviet uniform. Mark, what can you tell me about your uniform? Uh, Yeah, this is a uh, Soviet paratroop uniform. One of the things I do that a lot of reenactors don't, uh, I don't do barracks uniforms, I don't do medals, I don't do patches. What I do is in the field so I've got field equipment my interest comes from uh, I mean I was at school in the 1980s the early 1980s Um, I was I'd left school obviously by the time that the uh, wall came down and Germany was reunified so it's almost a case of all the things that we didn't know back then is what I'm doing now. And there, there's not as many people doing Soviet as there is East German, so I'll generally do Soviet. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It seems like East Germans are ten a penny round here, so I uh, appreciate your specialism. Listen, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for speaking with me. Thank you very much. No problems. That is all we had time for. However, if you want to see more, our show notes contain a number of photos of the event as well as links to the Hat Green Bunker Museum and other sites. Our show notes are at coldwarconversations.com. Just click on the episodes and show notes option on the homepage. If you like what you are listening to, do join our vibrant Facebook discussion group where there's loads of Cold War information and further discussions with our guests. Just search Cold War Conversations. We're also on Twitter at Cold War Pod.
Lastly, please do leave reviews with your podcast provider. It does help to publicize the podcast. Thank you very much for listening and supporting us. It is really appreciated. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.